welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi. Hi. So uh, I hope you had a new year. Uh, it's almost the new year. It's almost the new We're year. We're almost Can there, you guys. We're so close. Um, so I, I hope you all had a nice holiday, uh, first of all. And second of all, I hope you have a nice um, and lovely and warm and comforting New Year's. Um, may 2021 be better than 2020. Um, all signs point to yes, but let's keep hope alive, everyone. <laughs> um, so uh, today, so you know... I work at an art museum. What? Yes. I hate to break it to you on the podcast on a live (laughs) recording like this. (laughs) Um, But the thing that I have learned from working at an art museum is how the art market is very hmm, subjective. Yes. That's a great. That's a great neutral phrase. Yeah. So I was actually talking to Steve about this. We had like an art committee meeting and, you know, we always like update each other on our day. Like, how was your day? And like, how was your day? And I was like, oh, we had art committee and, you know, like, you know, we're purchasing this piece of art for this amount of money and this piece of art for this amount of money. And, you know, like, and Steve was like, Ugh, oh, my God. And I was like, what? What's wrong? And he was like, it just it blows my mind that art is just is not like it's not like um, a resource that you can mm-hmm. purchase. The price of it is just like arbitrary like Mm -hmm. everyone agrees that this thing is worth 7.5 million dollars and then people pay that much money and i was like will you buy gold for work and he was like yeah but we use it (laughs) (laughs) like it's not like we buy gold and then carve it into something and then resell it like it's we use it for science science i was like well i guess you're right so um thinking about the art market and thinking about how strange it is and how it's always been like very weird um, despite the fact that we're a nonprofit museum institution, we still have, you know, we're still subject to the whims and uh, and winds of of the art market. Um, I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about um, some very famous artists. So today, I'm going to be talking about the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. <laughs> So, Julia, how familiar are you with Jean-Michel Pesquiat? Ooh. Um, sketchy, sketchily details in my mm, head. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that he All was right. a black artist from mm-hmm. New York City mm-hmm. in the 80s. Very good. And See? did he die of AIDS? Uh, he did not, but he okay. did die young. Okay. So we'll talk, we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. So we're going to be talking about Jean-Michel Basquiat, his style, his his life. It's very interesting. So let's just get into it. Um, Jean-Michel was born in Brooklyn, as you mentioned, uh, on December 22nd, 1960, shortly after the death of his older brother, Max. So um, you'll see soon that his, his home life was um, uh, a little unruly, oh. but we'll get there. Uh, he was the second of four children of middle-class parents, uh, Mathilde and Gerard Basquiat. Uh, he had two younger sisters, and his father, Gerard, was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and his mother, Mathilde, uh, was of Puerto Rican descent, and she was born in Brooklyn as well. Okay. Uh, Mathilde instilled a love 
uh, for art and her young son by taking him to art museums in Manhattan. And she enrolled him as a junior member of the Brooklyn Museum of Art. Um, she was in a, she was used to be an aspiring fashion designer, so she also loved to draw. Um, so she really encouraged his artistic talents. Um, Jean-Michel was actually a very precocious child who learned how to read and write by the age of four. And nice. yeah, and he was also a very gifted artist and his mother encouraged her son's artistic talent and his his dad was um, an accountant and he would bring home scrap paper from the office mm. and he would draw all over the paper. So in September of 1968, at the age of seven, he was hit by a car while he was playing in the street. <gasps> Oh, yeah. no. It was terrible. His arm was broken, and he suffered several internal injuries and eventually underwent a splenectomy. They, they <gasps> removed his Oof. spleen. Yeah, so it was very bad. He was in the hospital for a month, hmm. and while he was recuperating from his injuries, his mother bought him a copy of Grey's Anatomy to keep him occupied. And so, <laughs> you and know, for some reason, what every seven-year-old wants to read. Loves. Well, Love turns it. out... He loved it. So mm-hmm. this book would actually prove to be very influential in his future artistic style. Wow. Um, unfortunately, his parents uh, also separated that year, and he and his sisters were raised by their father. Okay. So by the age of 11, Basquiat was fully fluent in French, Spanish, and English, and was an avid reader of all three languages. So he was obviously, like, super smart just from the get-go and also very artistically talented. Um, His family resided in Borum Hill, Brooklyn for five years and then moved to San Juan uh, in 1974, uh, where he studied at a Catholic school. And then after two years, they returned to New York City. Um, Unfortunately, around this time, his mother was committed to a mental institution and thereafter spent her life in and out of institutions. So she had some, some very tough experiences with mental illness. And so due to his mother's instability and just his family unrest, he ran away from home at 15 and slept on park benches in Washington Square Park uh, until he was arrested and then returned to the care of his father. So, And that's you know, like in the his, 70s. That's like... Yeah, that's a that's rough... That's like peak rough New York rough City. Rough New York. Yeah, very rough. So he was not... He was not in a very stable Aww. environment. So then in 1977, Basquiat and his schoolmate Al Diaz began spray painting graffiti on buildings in lower Manhattan. And they worked under the pseudonym SAMO, S-A-M-O. Okay. And this was uh, an acronym for, they thought, same old shit, basically. (laughs) Um, This was after he dropped out of high school. um, And so as a way to survive and make money, he began to sell homage postcards and t-shirts. So he would like, you know draw somebody famous Mm -hmm. or like you know make a little homage to like his favorite band or whatever and he would sell them on the street um the designs also featured inscribed messages with his untitled works uh such as it was called plush safe he think samo and i don't know what plush safe he think means (laughs) but it's one of his first works okay (laughs) so the thing oh and another one was called samo as an escape clause hmm so the thing with his graffiti was that he used a lot of phrases and words that he would just see on the street. So he'd be walking around New York. He would see a phrase. It would like kind of get stuck in his brain. It would like rattle around a little mm-hmm. bit. And then he would just kind of like regurgitate that in his artwork across, around the city. And then he would sign it Samo as like this roving character who was um, Samo in his mind was like this um, ne'er do well, like cult, like aspiring cult leader who was trying to write these codes around the city to get followers to follow him. It was just like this character that he had made, which is kind of cool. That's cool. 
So at the age of 17, his father kicked him out of the house after he decided to drop out of school. Mm -hmm. So then he worked odd jobs to keep himself afloat. And at night, he continued spray painting graffiti as Samo on neighborhood buildings. Um, And this Samo character, the Samo artwork, uh, got so much attention that actually in 78, the Village Voice published an article about the Samo graffiti. So he was really gaining a lot of interest. Um, In April of 1979, Basquiat met Michael Holman at a party and they formed the noise rock band Test Pattern, which was later renamed Gray. Okay. And he named it Gray because of Gray's Anatomy. It was like his homage to Gray's Anatomy. Um, Another member of Gray was Vincent Gallo. Do you know who Vincent Gallo is? Something. Is that an actor? Yeah. Yes. So engineer Josh has given me a thumbs up. Um, Vincent Gallo was the writer, director, and star of uh, Buffalo 66, as well as Brown Bunny. These are these very like gritty indie films. Uh, Buffalo 66, because Vincent Gallo is originally from Buffalo. So he, yeah. So he made this movie called Buffalo 66. And it's basically like, it's basically a movie about like the dark underbelly of Buffalo, New York. It's not good. I watched it a couple of years ago. It's it's not great. It's and Vincent Gallo is a very frightening looking man. Um and Brown Bunny is also not good. Uh but you know, he's well known in kind of like this gritty New York underground uh, art film the, circles. The black market of chicken wings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the band Grey performed at nightclubs. Uh, such as Max's Kansas City, CBGB, Hurrah, and the Mud Club. And the Mud okay. Club was a big, was a, a kind of the hub of where all of these like young artists and musicians and things would hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, so around this time, Basquiat lived in the East Village with his friend Alexis Adler, who was a uh, Barnard biology graduate. And he often copied diagrams of chemical compounds borrowed from Adler's science textbooks. So the thing about Basquiat was that he was always absorbing things and just kind of like mishmashing them in his head. Um, she would talked a lot about how, um, he, his creative explorations, um, would kind of manifest themselves as drawing on everything in their apartment. He would draw on the walls, <laughs> oh, floors, boy. doors, furniture. She would just, he would incorporate all this into his artwork. So he had um, to get it out. He had to get it out. If he didn't have paper on hand, he would just grab a pen and like start drawing on the fridge. Like he, he could not stop. That's an awful roommate. I got to tell you. Oh, my God. People actually, some of his roommates were like, it made us absolutely crazy. We never got our security <laughs> deposit back. Like, it was, <laughs> it was awful. It's worse than the houses that they played <laughs> on fire in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, one day while selling postcards in Soho, Basquiat spotted Andy Warhol at a restaurant. And at the time, he sold Warhol a postcard titled Stupid Games, Bad Ideas. So this was kind of like the beginnings Mm. of Warhol and Basquiat, their relationship, which I'll get to. So in October of 1979, at an open creative space called A's, Basquiat showed his Samo montages using color Xerox copies of his works. Um, the owner also allowed Basquiat to use the space to create his man-made clothing, which were basically upcycled garments that he would paint on. Um, and in November 1979, costume designer Patricia Field carried his clothing line in her upscale boutique on 8th Street in the East Village. Oh. And she also displayed his sculptures in the store window. So he's starting to get, he's starting to gain some serious traction right. yeah. in the art world. Um, and he was uh, like a multimedia artist. He was just constantly working with whatever he could get his hands on. Basically. Was he making any money? 
Um, I think at this point he was making like a little bit of money, okay. but he it it accelerated very quickly. Like within the next year or so, he was he was becoming like yeah. a really big deal. Um, so after Basquiat and Diaz had a falling out, the Samo project ended with the epitaph "Samo is dead" inscribed on the walls of Soho buildings in early 1980. So people knew he was Samo at that point. Yeah, yeah, and I think one of the reasons why they fell out was because. Al Diaz felt like he was getting kind of elbowed out mm-hmm. of their collaboration mm-hmm. where, you know, Basquiat is being very open about being Samo and like, you know, tr- trying to sell work as Samo and all of the stuff. And he's like, uh, you know, I'm part of this too kind of thing. So they decided to just kind of shutter the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, so later in 1980, Basquiat began filming art writer Glenn O'Brien's independent film called Downtown 81, which is originally titled New York Beat. Um, the film featured Basquiat as the star. Basically, it was kind of a loose story of his life. Um, it featured some of his band's recording on the soundtrack. It actually was not released until the year 2000. Oh, how about that? Yeah, which is really strange. Um, but it was, uh, I, I think you can like, it. I think it debuted at like the Tribeca Film Festival or something that year, but mm. I think you can like access it and watch it. So during the early 1980s, Basquiat made his breakthrough as a solo artist. And in June of that year, um, in June of 1980, excuse me, uh, Basquiat participated in the Times Square show, which was a multi-artist exhibition. Um, He was noticed by various critics and curators, including Jeffrey Deitch, who wrote the first press mention of Basquiat in an article titled Report from Times Square in Art in America, which is a very influential American art magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, We get it at the museum. It's kind of a big deal. So that was a big deal. And he's only mm, 20 at this point. Okay. Yeah, he's very, very young. So in February of 1981, Basquiat participated in the New York New Wave exhibit curated by Diego Cortez at the New York's MoMA PS1. Cortez organized Basquiat's first solo show with Emilio Mazzoli, an Italian gallerist that opened in Modena, Italy on May 23rd, 1981. So he's now becoming international All at this right. point. All right. Um, in December 1981, Rene Ricard published The Radiant Child in Art Forum magazine, the first extensive article on Basquiat. Radiant Child becomes kind of a shorthand for Basquiat. It becomes kind of like his hmm. nickname kind of thing in in the press. Okay. Um, in like the art press. So it's this idea that he's so young and so talented and like this incredibly, you know, bright burning talent. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a very, you know, flattering article about him. And I think this was like the first time that people really started to, like the powers that be really started to pay attention mm-hmm. to him. Also during this period, Basquiat painted many pieces on objects that he found in the streets, such as just discarded doors and garbage and wood and all sorts of stuff. So I'm going to take a break here and talk a little bit about his style, because this kind of speaks to what 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 are you looking for when you're trying to identify a Jean-Michel Basquiat mm-hmm. piece? So his style is, is, as you can imagine, graffiti-based. There's a lot of pithy sayings just kind of floating around on the canvas, there's codes, symbols, they're all, and they're all layered on top of each other. They're very messy, very complicated, very um, kinetic uh, visual style. Um, he incorporates uh, big, bold colors. He would take inspiration from the city around him and incorporate it into his art. Uh, there are these, you know, kind of frenetic, layered, complicated images with multiple meetings and this kind of childlike imagery. His figures have a kind of a... Um, like a stick figure-esque kind of quality to them. 
He also used crowns, halos, etc., to define okay. and deify black figures in his artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would frequently depict like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie because he was really into jazz. And the crown, that kind of like hand-drawn mm-hmm. crown, became his symbol, basically. Okay, great. So, so if there's a crown, like a little, like a kind of scrawled hand-drawn crown, um, in the piece, it's probably a Basquiat. Um, also. A lot of his artwork involves skulls, internal anatomy, references to Catholicism, and also Haitian voodoo traditions. So he kind of like, it's just like a mishmash mix of different things. And it has a very um, interesting, like visual Mm -hmm. style to it. He also personally was kind of preoccupied with this idea of burning bright and burning out, like Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin, who also ironically died at 27, as Mm -hmm. he would. Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's very creepy. Like, he he would mention it often and frequently, like, oh, man, I hope I don't burn out like Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin, which is, like, super creepy. Um, He was both in fear of and obsessed with the idea that he would die young, essentially. Ooh. And towards the end of his life, he would frequently call Andy Warhol and like freak out about famous people dying too soon. He had read um, the Belushi book. And so he was like freaking out about like dying of a drug overdose oh, or geez. dying too young okay. at like the peak of his career. Um, he also clearly struggled with mental illness mm-hmm. and possibly something that he inherited is from his mother. And he used drugs copiously to deal with both his internal demons and the trappings of this intensely quick fame that he was experiencing. Um, he started dropping acid at 15. He was using cocaine and heroin by 1980. So he was, you know, quickly on the path of truly burning bright and burning out. So it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, unfortunately, um, for him. Um, Basquiat sold his first painting called Cadillac Moon to singer Debbie Harry, who was the front woman of the punk rock band Blondie. Oh, okay. And he sold it to her for $200. That seems um, reasonable. Yeah, it's a reasonable. I would, man, if I had the opportunity to buy a Basquiat for 200 bucks, <laughs> sure. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, they were in downtown 81 together, so they had a previous relationship. Um, Basquiat also appeared in the 1981 Blondie music video Rapture in a role originally attended for Grandmaster Flash as a nightclub DJ. So he's in that video if you if you like, you know, <laughs> okay. want to take a look and see see him there. Um, at the time, Basquiat was living with his girlfriend, Suzanne Malouk, who financially supported him as a waitress. And later she described his, uh, his sexuality in Jennifer Clemens' book called Widow Basquiat, which is about his relationships. Um, she described his sexuality as, quote, not monochromatic. It did not rely on visual stimulation, such as a pretty girl. It was a very rich, multichromatic sexuality. He was attracted to people for all different reasons. They could be boys, girls, thin, fat, pretty, ugly. It was, I think, driven by intelligence. He was attracted to intelligence more than anything and to pain. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I know. That, like, at, like, that little, like, addendum there is like, ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> like what um so for all intents and purposes um uh basquiat is accepted as a queer icon Mm -hmm. um so it's it's interesting it it doesn't really come up in his in his artwork necessarily like it's not overtly you know queer or Mm -hmm. homosexual or or you know pansexual or any of those things um but it was part of his life and so it's this idea that he was an outsider from the beginning so he was he was black. He was um, he was young. He was working in a style of artwork that was not common at the time. That was not considered high art. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was always kind of grappling with this idea of being lauded by important people, but also never feeling like 
he was like being he taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Like he belonged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also not for nothing, he was usually mm, nine times out of 10 in like towards the end of his life when he was really, really huge, the only black person in the room. Ugh. And that really took a toll on him mentally as well, that he was kind of this, there was a feeling of tokenism for him and that he was um, not taken seriously as an individual and just kind of lauded as, you know, like this, you know, like this crazy black guy with dreads kind of thing who was making this intense artwork. So there was that. Um, So in 1981, art dealer Anina Noze invited Basquiat to participate in her group show called Public Address. Um, she provided him with materials and a space to work in the basement of her gallery. And in 82, she arranged for Basquiat to move into a loft, which also served as a studio. So no more roommates whose stuff was just constantly being destroyed. Being drawn on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he had his first American one-man show at the Anita Nose Gallery in March of 1982. And later that same month, he painted in Modena again for his second Italian exhibition. Um, by that summer, he had left the Anita Nose Gallery and Bruno Bischofberger became his worldwide art dealer. Um, he seemed to have a lot of issues with dealers. Mm. He would frequently move from dealer to dealer looking for the respect and money that he felt like he deserved and, and did deserve for all intents and purposes. It seemed like a lot of the people who worked with him recognized his talent but didn't really know how to market him. Okay. Um, was he a street artist? Was he a painter? He wasn't formally trained. And his artwork was just like rife with symbols and phrases and expressions of the black experience. And it seemed like these predominantly rich white dealers didn't really have a handle on what he brought to the table, so to speak. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so in June of 1982, Basquiat became the youngest artist to ever take part in Documenta in Castle, Germany, where his works were exhibited alongside Joseph Beuys, Anselm Kiefer, Gerhard Richter, Cy Twombly, and Andy Warhol. Hmm. Um, Bischoff Berger gave Basquiat a one-man show in his Zurich gallery in September of 1982, and he arranged for Basquiat to meet Warhol for lunch uh, in October of that year. Um, Warhol recalled that Basquiat, uh, quote, went home and within two hours, a painting was back, still wet, of him and me together. Um, the painting, which was called Dos Cabezas, uh, ignited a friendship between them. Dos Cabezas means uh, two heads. Two heads. Mm-hmm. And Basquiat was featured in the January 1983 issue of Warhol's Interview Magazine. So this is when Basquiat's starting to get super hot. Mm-hmm. And he kind of ties himself to Warhol. They develop a very strong friendship at this point. Um, and in November of 1982, uh, Basquiat began working from the ground floor display and studio space Larry Gagosian had built below his Venice, California home. And for the rest of his life, Basquiat would kind of go back and forth between California and New York and Venice, Italy. I'm Wait, not Venice, he was just Italy. working in some guy's basement? Yeah, but this is Larry Gagosian. So Larry Gagosian was like, is like Gagosian Gallery is like one of the largest gallery systems in the West. So this was a very nice basement. This was an extremely like a castle basement. basement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Probably had beautiful light. Probably right by the ocean. All this stuff. Um, So there he commenced a series of paintings for a March 1983 show, which was actually his second at the Gagosian Gallery in West Hollywood. Um, Basquiat then flew out his girlfriend, um, a little singer you may have heard of called Madonna, to accompany him. 
Um, Gagosian later recalled, quote, everything was going along fine. Jean-Michel was making paintings. I was selling them and we were having a lot of fun. But then one day Jean-Michel said to me, my girlfriend is coming to stay with me. I was a little concerned. One too many eggs can spoil an omelet, you know? So I said, well, what's she like? And he said, her name is Madonna and she's going to be huge. I'll never forget that he said that. So Madonna came out and stayed for a few months and we all got along like one big happy family. I gotta take umbrage with one too many eggs can spoil the omelet. <laughs> I mean, I love a big omelet. You know yeah. what I mean? Give me like, a three I don't egg think... omelet. Hell yeah, three egg omelet with some cheese and bacon. Yes, please. I don't know what Larry's talking about. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <clears throat> so, in March 1983, at 22 years old, Basquiat was included in the Whitney Biennial, becoming the youngest artist to represent America in a major international exhibition of contemporary art. Mm -hmm. So the Whitney Biennial is a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. It is a juried exhibit of contemporary art. It's still going on now. Um, And if you are chosen for the Whitney Biennial, you are set for life, basically. Like, it is a big, big deal. Every art dealer, art collector, museum director worth their salt goes to the Whitney Biennial or at least buys the catalog. Like, it's a big deal. So, um, at this time, Basquiat was deeply affected by the death of a man named Michael Stewart. Uh, Michael Stewart was a young black artist in the downtown club scene who was killed by transit police in September of 1983. Mm. Uh, Michael Stewart was just, like, drawing on the walls in the uh, First Avenue station. And uh, the transit police kind of, like, confronted him. And they arrested him and hogtied him and beat him into unconsciousness. And then after uh, 13 days in a coma, he died. Oh, my gosh. It was horrific. Um, And Basquiat was really affected by this because he felt like since he was a graffiti artist and he used to do that all the time, um, that it could have been him, Mm -hmm. that he could have easily have had the same fate as Michael Stewart. And he and Michael Stewart weren't friends, um, but they definitely ran in the same circles. Mm -hmm. Um, they knew the same people and actually Michael Stewart was dating Basquiat's ex-girlfriend at the time. Oh my gosh. So, um, and it's terrible. Like the, the cops were acquitted and, um, the family, uh, Michael Stewart's family was given like a civil suit, you know, settlement of like $1.7 million, which does not bring their son back. Mm -hmm. And it was just horrific, horrific stuff. Um, that he was just mm, arrested for vandalism and was murdered which is really awful. And he was only 25. It's horrific. It's horrific. Um, So Basquiat painted a piece called Defacement, the death of Michael Stewart in response to that incident. And um, this uh, it's a, it's a great piece. And Michael Stewart is seen. um, You can see the two cops who have like they're pink faced and they have like um, fangs. Okay. And it looks, like, it looks like a little kid drawing, mm-hmm. but Michael is in the center of it and you see him from the back. He's just kind of silhouetted. So the idea is that he could be any, any young mm. black man. Um, so you could, you know, Basquiat really like reflected himself in that and wanted the viewer to like really reflect themselves in that. So, um, so this was another thing that kind of like hit him mentally. Like it really affected him in a major way. And this was kind of, I don't want to say the beginning of the end, but it was another blow to his kind of mental state mm-hmm. at the time. Um, in 1983, also Basquiat produced a 12 inch rap single featuring hip hop artists, Ramel Z and K Rob, uh, billed as Ramel Z versus K Rob. The single contained two versions of the same track called beat bop on the A side with vocals, with the B side adding an instrumental version. And, um, that music is the stinger in this episode at the beginning. You heard a little bit of beat bop. Um, you can hear the whole album on YouTube as a matter of fact. 
Uh, the single was pressed in limited quantities on the one-off Tartown record label, uh, and the single's cover featured Basquiat artwork, making the pressing highly desirable among both record and art collectors, okay. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. So by 1984, Basquiat was showing at the Mary Boone Gallery in Soho, and he would often paint in expensive Armani suits and would even appear in public in the same paint-splattered clothing. Uh, and in 1985, he appeared on the cover of the New York Times magazine in a feature titled New Art, New Money, The Marketing of an American Artist. So a large number of photographs depicted a collaboration between Warhol and Basquiat in 1984 and 1985. Um, For their joint painting called Olympics, Warhol made the five ring Olympic symbol rendered in the original primary colors and Basquiat painted over it in his kind of animated style. It's actually a really cool piece. Mm -hmm. Um, And they made another homage to the 1984 Summer Olympics with Olympic rings uh, in 85. Um, Their joint exhibition called Paintings, shown at the Tony Schifrazi Gallery, um, it actually caused a riff in their friendship after it was like kind of slandered by Ooh. critics because critics referred to Basquiat as Warhol's mascot. And at the same time, Warhol was ridiculed for associating with a younger artist in order to stay relevant. Ugh. So it was like, critics, this idea, man. Like, like I know they are, they're awful. So they're like, who's this young dummy who's, you know, thinks that he can like become famous because of Warhol. And then like, look at this old man thinking that he can stay relevant by, you know, hitching his star to, you know, this rising artist mm-hmm. or whatever. So whatever. I mean, they're the worst. <laughs> so <clears throat> despite his artistic success, uh, Basquiat's emotional instability was, continuing to haunt him and he used drugs frequently and his cocaine use became so excessive that he blew a hole in his nasal septum which is like rough um a friend claimed that basquiat confessed that he was on heroin in late 1980 and he started to get these discolorations on his face like these spots on his face which he was really self-conscious about and they were presumably the result of the fact that he didn't have a spleen and his body couldn't filter out like what he was putting in his body Right. So it was, and your skin is an organ. So that was why he was getting these like very strong spots on his cheeks and jaw. It's crazy. And you can see it in photographs at the time Mm -hmm. too. Like it looks kind of like, like just, you know, dark spots or freckles, but that was a result of his drug use. Um, Also, many of his peers speculated that his heroin use was a means of coping with the demands of his newfound fame and the exploitative nature of the art industry and the pressures of being a black man in a white dominated art world, as mentioned before. So in August of 1986, Basquiat traveled to the Ivory Coast for an exhibit organized by the art dealer Bruno Bischofberger at the French Cultural Institute in Abidjan. And he was accompanied by his girlfriend, Jennifer Good, who was considered by many to be the great love of his life. And she unsuccessfully tried to get Basquiat into a methadone program. He was very resistant to rehab. And I think that was probably, you know, one of the main reasons why he died so young was because he was just he wouldn't even entertain the thought, unfortunately. Uh, Basquiat also walked the runway for Ray Kawakubo at the Comme des Garçons Spring Summer 1987 show in Paris. And in the last 18 months of his life, Basquiat became something of a recluse. He continued uh, using drugs. And it was thought that it was a way of coping after the death of Andy Warhol in February of 1987. Uh, okay. Um, and a lot of his friends and acquaintances mentioned that the death of Warhol was really the end of Basquiat, partially because of this great loss of this friend and mentor. But notably because this was seemingly another reminder of how quickly death can take people he Mm. admires and emulates. Yeah. 
So in 88, he traveled to Paris for an exhibit at the Yvonne Lambert Gallery and to Dusseldorf for an exhibit that same month. And in Paris, he befriended the Ivorian artist uh, Uatara Watts, and they made plans to travel together to Watts' birthplace, Corhogo, that summer. So he was planning on kind of like going to Africa and making, you know, becoming friends and kind of getting in touch with like this black American, black experience, this African Mm -hmm. experience, black American experience, Haitian experience. Um, And following an an exhibition at a gallery in 88, Basquiat traveled to Maui in June of 1988. He had built, he had built a ranch in Maui and Hawaii became kind of his like refuge to a certain extent. Um, And he was, his father said that he was like too generous. He would, fly people out all the time to stay with him at his ranch and he would fly like these you know yes men and hangers on like these people who were just like Mm -hmm. looking for a free ride um when he returned from maui keith herring who was a very close friend of his uh reported meeting with basquiat who was glad to tell him that he had finally kicked his drug dependency so he was like i'm clean Unfortunately, despite attempts at sobriety, Basquiat died of a heroin overdose at his studio on Great Jones Street in Manhattan's NoHo neighborhood on August 12th, 1988. Uh, He had been found unresponsive in his bedroom by his girlfriend, Kelly Inman, and he was taken to Cabrini Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead on arrival, and he was 27 years old. Uh, A private funeral was held on August 17th, 1988, and Basquiat is buried at Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. Um, in memory of the late artist, Keith Haring created the painting A Pile of Crowns for Jean-Michel Basquiat. And it is, I will say, I am not a Keith Haring fan, but A Pile of Crowns for Jean-Michel Basquiat is so beautiful. I actually like teared up a little bit when I saw it. It is, it's just a beautiful piece. Um, and in the obituary he wrote for Vogue, Haring stated, quote, he truly created a lifetime of works in 10 years. Greedily, we wonder what else he might have created, what masterpieces we, we have been cheated out of by his death. But the fact that he had created enough work to intrigue generations to come. Only now will people begin to understand the magnitude of his contribution. So he had this really terribly sad life, um, but he was enormously talented and just so prolific like he painted and drew and painted and drew and drew on everything and <laughs> all of these things are like still out there he made like i think like 2000 drawings it's just absolutely insane he just had an incredible amount of output his father became the executor of his estate and um the basquiat like brand is still around okay. like i know that I think it was Mac or maybe Pure. Some makeup company did like a collabo with the Basquiat estate, which I think is like, all right, it's kind of cheapy cheap. Like you can buy, like you can buy t-shirts from Uniqlo with like the Basquiat crown on it and that kind of thing. I mean, it's probably what he would have wanted. Like that seemed to be kind of his thing anyway, which is kind of like drawing on whatever. So this idea of like drawing on something you could buy, I think was not outside the realm of possibility for him. But it just seems, I don't know, it just seems kind of cheap that, mm. this, you know, this poor man is dead and, like, people are making money off of it, but whatever. But anyway, on a lighter note, I have a quiz today. It's called A Quiz on Jeans and Michels. It's a quiz on famous people named Jean or Michel. Oh, okay, great. Question number one. Jean Reno, the striking French-Moroccan character actor, may be best known to English-speaking audiences as the titular Léon in the 1994 action film Léon, the Professional. His 12-year-old co-star had her debut in this film and would later become one of Hollywood's most versatile actresses, playing a queen, a first lady, and even a bird of fowl. Name her. 
Question number two. Annalise Michel was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites in 1975, the year before her untimely death, and her story was the basis for the 2015 movie, The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Many health experts believe her condition was not in fact caused by demons, but by psychosis caused by this common chronic disorder of the nervous system, which looks a lot like demon possession. What is this disorder? Question number three. This extremely French fashion designer is best known for his cheeky sailor style and his over-the-top runway shows. Who is this designer who is definitely somebody that you used to know? Question number four. Engineer Josh would definitely know this one. This French director, screenwriter, and producer is best known for his inventive visual style seen in films like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Be Kind Rewind. Who is this director who has also done music videos for Daft Punk, Bjork, and Radiohead? Question number five. Jean-Claude Van Damme is an oft-mocked actor and martial artist who has made a career and presumably a lot of money making B-grade movies at best. He has a funny accent, but he's not French. Is JCVD French-Canadian or Belgian? Question number six. This infamous 20th century French philosopher espoused theories that primarily address the relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used as a form of social control through societal institutions. He wrote Madness and Civilization, Discipline and Punish, and The History of Sexuality. Who is this philosopher, historian of ideas, writer, political activist, and literary critic? Question number seven. You may not know a lot about French actor and comedian Jean Dujardin, but if you were around in 2011, you couldn't escape his starring role in this inexplicably popular and Oscar-winning silent film entitled What? Question number eight. This Canadian hockey coach began his career with the Montreal Canadiens, where he led the Habs to an impressive record of 36-31-15 before being promoted to the Pittsburgh Penguins in December of 2005 as a mid-season replacement for Ed Olsik and coached the Pens until 2009. He is currently the assistant coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. Boo hiss. Who is this coach? Question number nine. Jean Cocteau was an influential poet, playwright, novelist, and visual artist who ran in the same circles as Marcel Proust, Apollinaire, Modigliani, and Eric Satie. He denied being part of this artistic movement, but he's still considered a practitioner all the same. What is this experimental, unorthodox artistic movement, which I did an episode on? It's very good. And finally, question number 10. I've never heard of composer and performer Jean-Michel Jarre, but he seems to be very big in France. He is best known for organizing outdoor spectacles featuring his music, vast laser displays, large projections, and fireworks. In fact, he's planning a big virtual concert at Notre Dame on New Year's Eve. He is best known for being a pioneer in what music genre that emphasizes tone and atmosphere over traditional musical structure or rhythm, and is something you might hear at a spa or during a yoga session. What is this genre of music? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers.
early 1980s art explosion in New York City, I started to think back about those times as I reflected that afternoon. I recall the rehearsal with the group Grey in the summer of 1980. You would think with all these French names you threw at me that I was going to do really good, but as I've mentioned before, my brain is very tired. It's okay. You know what? It's all right. So this we'll is not see. for any money or anything. It's That's just true. For, it's just for bragging rights between the two of us, <laughs> which is very little. So, all right. Here we go. Okay. Question number one. Jean Reno, the striking French-Moroccan character actor, may be best known to English-speaking audiences as the titular Léon in the 1994 action film Léon, the Professional. His 12-year-old co-star had her debut in this film and would later become one of Hollywood's most versatile actresses, playing a queen, a first lady, and even a bird of fowl. Name her. She is Natalie Portman. It is Natalie Portman. Uh, Steve and I just watched the first couple of episodes of uh, Star Wars, where she was, that she was in. She was Queen Amidala. Yeah, it is not good. It is, they are not good movies. (laughs) Uh, You shouldn't watch them. Not that you're planning on it, but just FYI, they're not good. Okay. Question number two. Annalise Michel was a German woman who underwent Catholic exorcism rites in 1975, the year before her untimely death, and her story was the basis for the 2015 movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Many health experts believe her condition was not in fact caused by daemons, but by psychosis caused by this common chronic disorder of the nervous system, which looks a lot like demon possession. What is this disorder? Is it epilepsy? It is epilepsy. Oh, geez. Her story is very sad. I'm going to tell you it. Okay. Um, After she was diagnosed with epilepsy at 16 and after taking psychiatric medication for five years, which failed to improve her symptoms, Michelle and her family became convinced that she was possessed by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. And while they were rejected at first, after much hesitation, two priests got permission from the local bishop in 75. The priests began conducting exorcism sessions and her parents stopped consulting doctors. Mm. Annalise Michelle stopped eating food and died due to malnourishment and dehydration after 67 exorcism sessions. Mm. Michelle's parents and the two Roman Catholic priests were found guilty of negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail, which was eventually reduced to three years of probation, as well as a fine. That's terrible. It's very sad. Okay. Question number three. This extremely French fashion designer is best known for his cheeky sailor style and his over-the-top runway shows. Who is this designer who is definitely somebody that you used to know? Thank you for that clue. Uh, Gautier? Yes, it's Jean-Paul Gautier. (laughs) Um, A quick, like, shorthand for a Gautier outfit is he loved that, um, the French striped, like, sailor style. Oh, yeah. That was, like, his thing like he would dress up all sorts of handsome men in like this very tight french sailor style um and in fact his um perfume line he's got like a cologne and perfume line is just like a disembodied like a a headless male body i was gonna say doesn't he have like some crazy perfumes yes yeah it's always like a body so like the women's one is like a body without a head or arms mm-hmm. or legs and the men's one is a very handsome man's body without a head or arms or legs did he do the cone boob thing for madonna um that sounds right i want to say let's check that out cone bra cone madonna. Boob. <laughs> cone bra madonna 
Yep, I know. Oh, yep, it is Jean-Paul Gaultier. Yep, that makes sense. Gaultier was super into like um, exaggerating the body, like high camp stuff. Mm. So, and he loved to play with like menswear and womenswear and like kind of the gender binary. It was like his whole thing. He stopped doing um, couture a couple years ago, I want to say, but he still does ready to wear because it's cheaper. It's cheaper to make ready to wear than it is to make like reams and reams of couture <laughs> with expensive stuff that no one buys. And so, no one's going anywhere right now anyway. No one's going anywhere right now. He really had the right idea. Okay, question number four. Engineer Josh would definitely know this one. This French director, screenwriter, and producer is best known for his inventive visual style, seen in films like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Be Kind Rewind. Who is this director who has also done music videos for Daft Punk, Bjork, and Radiohead? Okay, I feel like this guy's name is Michelle, and his last name starts with a G. Yes, correct. N. yes. That's all I got. Oh, you're you're like three quarters of the way there. You're like <laughs> Michelle gone. See, this is this is the kind of thing where if Lauren and I were on a trivia team together, I would say Michelle. Yes. I would say it's G O N something, and then she would fill it in for me. Yeah, and we'd, yeah. we'd all celebrate. Um, we we are stronger together and not individually. Um, it's true. How many more letters do I need? Three, three. Yeah, three more letters. I don't know. Do you want me to tell you? I don't I know anymore. (laughs) It's okay. That piece was there, but the other (laughs) the other piece has been expelled from my brain. Yeah. Do you want me to tell you? Yeah, what is it? It's Michelle Gondry. Gondry. Yeah, Gondry. Uh. Mm -hmm, Michelle Gondry apparently pioneered the bullet time technique later seen in the Matrix movies. Oh. Yeah. Um, Engineer Josh wants you to know, it's kind of weird that you didn't mention the white stripes. Oh, well, uh, I just, honestly, I had not seen any of the videos um, or remembered any of them. So I just picked three bands that I thought might be helpful. Thank you, Lauren. (laughs) Thank you, Engineer Josh. Sorry, Engineer Josh is shaking his his head at me so strongly. Okay. All right. Question number five. Jean-Claude Van Damme is an oft-mocked actor and martial artist who has made a career and presumably a lot of money making B-grade movies at best. He has a funny accent, but he's not French. Is JCVD French-Canadian or Belgian? That man is Belgian. He is Belgian. His given name is Jean-Claude Camille Francois Van Varenberg. Um, (sighs) Two... Two hilarious things about this guy, okay? Mm -hmm. One, in 2008, actor Sylvester Stallone declared to the British magazine FHM that at a party in my home in Miami in 1997, Van Damme was tired of Steven Seagal claiming that he could kick his ass. So he offered Seagal outside into my backyard. According to Stallone, Seagal made his excuse and left while Van Damme tracked him down at a nightclub and challenged him again. (laughs) Stallone finished by stating, quote, Van Damme was too strong. Seagal wanted none of it. And the second thing is, apparently, in the French-speaking world, Van Damme is well-known and often mocked for his picturesque aphorisms that he delivers on a wide range of topics, including personal well-being, spirituality, the environment, women, dogs, his ability to crack walnuts with his butt, his realization that Christianism is flawed based on the fact that, quote, snakes are nice, and, quote, apples contain pectin, which is anti-cholesterol, etc., um, and he is very sensitive about this because he um, he did not 
grow up speaking French. He was like trying to like reorient himself with speaking French because I think he spoke mostly German. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, <laughs> so he's not great at French. And so the French speaking world just laughs and laughs at him because he is not great. <laughs> he's not oh, great at like boy. getting his point across. It's hysterical. Poor guy. He's fine. He makes plenty he's of money. He's fine. He's fine. Okay. Question number six. This infamous 20th century French philosopher espoused theories that primarily address the relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used as a form of social control through societal institutions. He wrote Madness and Civilization, Discipline and Punish, and the History of Sexuality. Who is this philosopher, historian of ideas, writer, political activist, and literary critic? Hmm... Did you say 19th century? 20th century. 20th century. Hmm. Um, I'm just going to throw out the first name that popped into my head and I'll say Jean-Jacques okay. Rousseau. Oh, it's uh, Michel Foucault. Foucault. Oh, he has yeah. a pendulum. Yes, he's got the pendulum. Uh, Foucault, Foucault died in Paris from complicated complications of AIDS in 1984 and he became the first public figure in France to die from complications of the disease. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Uh, question number seven. You may not know a lot about French actor and comedian Jean Desjardins, but if you were around in 2011, you couldn't escape his starring role in this inexplicably popular and Oscar-winning silent film entitled what? That was the artist. That was the artist. I went and saw it. I got... I got caught up in the artist type just as much as the next person, but literally it did not age well. Like it's fine. Like it's fine. <laughs> it's Don't get me fine. wrong. It's perfectly fine, but it's certainly not Oscar the best Academy picture winning fine. loves the throwback to the golden oh, age of Hollywood. Love it. They're like, oh, the golden age of Hollywood. You know, like they love that garbage. They just eat it up. Um, he was terrific in The Monuments Men. Oh, you know what? I forgot about that. Yes, you're right. Yeah. He was incredible in that movie. Yeah. So. Yeah, you're right. You know what? He is. He's great. It's not his fault. That it's not his the fault. Artist the was artist was what it was. Yeah. All right. Question number eight. This Canadian hockey coach began his career with the Montreal Canadiens, where he led the Habs to an impressive record of 36-31-15 before being promoted to the Pittsburgh Penguins in December of 2005 as a midseason replacement for Ed and Old coach check. the Penguins. Old check. Thank you. And coach the Pens until 2009. He is currently the assistant coach of the Philadelphia Flyers. Boo hiss. Who is this coach? Thank you for all of your interjections in that question. Um, his name is Michelle Terrian. It is Michelle Terrian. And he just looks so French Canadian. It's out of oh. control. He is. He has this. He has. He's a big giant aquiline nose. Yes. And mm-hmm. a little bit of jowls and a very yeah. furrowed brow. Yeah. And very furrowed his brow. blonde hair that's kind of receding and it's mm-hmm. combed back over his head. Very nice guy, though. Oh, nice I mean, he's. Guy. He seemed to do really well with the Penguins. Oh, yes. until he was fired. Until he was um, fired, and then Dan Bowsman took over, and then won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, blah 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 yeah, blah. Yeah. Um, it and is it funny that you mentioned John Claude Van Damme a little bit ago because um, uh, I think personally, uh, the only Jean Claude Van Damme movie I know is Sudden Sudden Death, which mm. takes place in Pittsburgh, and oh. there's a. a there's a chopper that crashes through the ceiling of the Civic Arena onto the <laughs> ice while the Pittsburgh Penguins are playing a hockey really? game. Really? Get out. And you know what? Steve and I have been trying to work our way through some cheesy Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. 
So we'll have to we'll have oh, to have, hook that one up yeah, next. Yeah, you'll have to watch Sudden Death. Yeah, yeah. Because we love to get drunk and watch bad movies and just laugh and laugh. So, all right, I'll keep that in mind. I'll write that down. <laughs> all right, question number nine. Mm-hmm. Jean Cocteau was an influential poet, playwright, novelist, and visual artist who ran in the same circles as Marcel Proust, Apollinaire, Modigliani, and Eric Satie. He denied being part of this artistic movement, but he's still considered a practitioner all the same. What is this experimental, unorthodox artistic movement, which I did an episode on? It's very good. Experimental, unorthodox. (laughs) Is it Dadaism? Um, You know what? I'll give it to you. Um, I I did put avant-garde slash surrealism, but... Yeah, Dada is the beginnings of both of those things. That's totally fine. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, He was influential specifically to a group of composers called Les Six, uh, which (laughs) frequented a very popular bar that Cocteau had a hand in naming, named, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Le Boeuf sur la Toit. How's that last word spelled? T-O-I-T. That's the cow on the roof. Yes, uh, or the beef on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. Uh, I love that. The beef on the roof, which was their popular bar. Okay. And finally, question number 10. I've never heard of composer and performer Jean-Michel Jarre, but he seems to be very big in France. He is best known for organizing outdoor spectacles, featuring his music, laser displays, projections, fireworks. He's planning a big virtual concert at Notre Dame on New Year's Eve. Sign up. Um, And he is known for being a pioneer in what music genre that emphasizes tone and atmosphere over traditional musical structures or rhythm, and is something you might hear at a spa or during a yoga session. What is this genre of music? It'll have a lot of bells, instead of a lot of bells and bowls. It seems to be a lot of, like, synthesizer. Um. It is a, I would say it is a, uh, it is a, a synonym for atmosphere. Mood music. <laughs> you know what? I'll give it to you. Um, it's <laughs> you're being very kind. I know. Well, you're very tired. It's fine. Um, it's called ambient music. Oh, okay. Yeah. So apparently he has been around. He had a, his first album was in the seventies and it was called, uh, oxygen or something. Oxygen. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was very big. It was very huge. <laughs> it was big uh, at the time. And apparently he does these huge concerts with like these enormous like projection displays. And I watched like 10 minutes of a concert. They had like the entire concert in Morocco on YouTube. And there were like thousands of people there. They were into this. They were like, show me. And he was like rocking away on his synthesizer. He was loving and living it. Not my kind of music. But you know what? Life is a rich tapestry. Oh, it is a rich, rich tapestry. And Jean-Michel Chajard is just a very small part of it. So, uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. This was, you know, this was another quick one. But we wanted to let you get back to your to your New Year's Eve plans, which involve, I'm imagining, slippers, comfortable clothing, maybe a Twilight Blankets. Zone marathon. Yeah. Keep your Keep your decorations up. Yeah, do it. Keep your decorations up. Um, yeah, please have a happy new year. Stay safe and warm if you are in the northern hemisphere. Uh, stay cool if you're in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> um, 
again, what about if you're in the Eastern Hemisphere? Oh, God. Yeah, the Eastern Hemisphere. Keep going. Yeah, it's been awful. Yeah, we're just going to keep talking about all of the different regions of our globe <laughs> and what temperature it is at the time. Um, yeah, thanks so much Those for listening, you, you guys. the Solomon Islands. I, uh, shout out. I hope you're uh, staying. Just a very specific. Cool. <laughs> staying cool, I guess. I don't know. I'm going to have to Google all of this. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Please check out our merch on Tee Public. Uh, please check out our social meds. I'm sure we have some retweets or something that you can check out or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. We're recording this ahead of time, so who knows what I've liked or retweeted in the time. Who knows? <laughs> and be sure if you're interested, um, we're still hosting that virtual trivia night for the Strong Museum of Play on uh, Thursday, January 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so get your tickets to that if you're if you want to play along with us. Yeah, definitely check out our social media. We will be definitely um, posting the link for that if you would like to sign up. All money goes to supporting the Strong Museum of Play and its efforts to bring play to uh, the Rochester community and beyond. Did you hear how I just bullshitted my way into your museum's visioning statement wow i'm telling you they should hire me um no i don't want to be hired there i love my job anyway (laughs) bless you before i continue before i continue uh thanks everybody for listening and we hope you have a safe and healthy new year's we will catch you next time goodbye bye